There's an old joke about a Christmas faux pas, where a family sets out a Christmas cake on the buffet after Christmas dinner, and the daughter's new husband helps himself to a slice. Everyone is horrified. That Christmas cake had been going around for 20 years, and now they have to make a new one. Everybody has an opinion about Christmas cake, and for the most part, that opinion is bad. Most people don't like them. Plenty of people find them absolutely disgusting. I am one of a very small percentage of people who actually really loves the stuff. I make three Christmas cakes every year using my grandmother's recipe, which calls for, among other things, candied turnip, peels, glassy cherries, and a cup of seedless jam. Any kind will do. The resulting confection is baked in a slow oven. That's an oven turned to a low temperature for a slow and long cooking time. And the result is kind of a desiccated fruit brick. Once cooked, the cake is wrapped in paper and put in a cool, dry cupboard where it is fed booze every week until Christmas. The cake I make rests from September to December, with weekly feedings of brandy, rum, sherry, whatever I have to hand. When it's ready to eat, it's moist, sticky, calorie-dense, a butter-and-sugar-filled confection flecked with unidentifiable pieces of, well, candied garbage. I love it, but it seems like most people hate it. So, why do we have it? Where did it come from? How did it come into fashion? And why do people still insist on making it? My name is Tamara McNeil, and welcome to She Eats Rations. If I knew you were coming, I'd bake a cake, bake a cake, bake a cake. If I knew you were coming, I'd bake a cake. How'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you do? Had you dropped me a letter, I'd have hired a band. Grand so band. before we go too far, I want to do a quick note on taxonomy. It turns out that the term Christmas cake can refer to an awful lot of stuff. Uh, Christmas cake, for purposes of this podcast, is a dense, heavy fruitcake loaf. Uh, It is also called fruitcake in the UK, sometimes apparently also called plum cake. And in the US, it is exclusively known as fruitcake, but it is only sold during Christmas time. Go figure. Uh, So back to the family fruitcake. I did a little research on Christmas cake, and I was a bit startled by what I found. First, the recipe that I bake from, Grounds, is not, as I first thought, Victorian. Sure, fruitcake was absolutely a staple of Victorian English cuisine, but it never appears under lists of modern Christmas confections in any of the books I wrangled up. The nearest thing I can find to the modern Christmas cake in English cookery is actually the wedding fruitcake, which calls for currants and sometimes raisins and almonds and candied peel. Second, the Christmas cake of my childhood, and the one I see most often in the shops, is not the only Christmas cake on the block. There's a Japanese version with strawberries and white cake, and it sounds actually fantastic, if not especially wintry to people who live in the Northern Hemisphere. There's a Philippine version, which is a yellow cake, heavier on the crushed nuts than Graham's or Safeway's version. There's an Indian Christmas cake, a Scotch one, the Italian panettone, the German stolen. The list goes on and on. For purposes of this podcast, I'm not talking about any of those cakes. I am talking about the treacle brown, dense, somewhat chewy, booze-soaked, faintly spiced Bricko cake that appears in heaps in Commonwealth grocery stores in November and goes on sale in January. And, you know, when you see someone buying two or three on January 15th, that that person is going to go home and bung them in the back of the cupboard until next year. Those are the ones I'm talking about. This iteration of Christmas cake seems to have started off life as a wedding cake. There's a Victorian Christmas cake and its cousin, the plum cake, both listed in Mrs. Beaton's Book of Household Management of 1861. But these cakes bear very little resemblance to our modern iteration of the Christmas cake, calling for a few raisins, a little candied peel, and that's about it in terms of things to make the cake special. The wedding and christening cake listed in Mrs. Beaton's book, on the other hand, is very close to the modern Christmas cake. Here's the recipe. Five pounds of flour, best. Three pounds of butter, fresh. Five pounds currants. 
two pounds sugar, two whole nutmegs, a quarter ounce each of mason cloves, 16 eggs, you heard that right, one pound almonds, one pound candied peel, one gill each of wine and brandy, and just for the rest of us who don't know old measurements, one gill is about 118 milliliters. The method section of the recipe is absolutely enormous, and almost all of it is dedicated to the preparation of the fruit, the sugar, and the spices. Remember, at this time, everything arrived in your kitchen whole, and it needed to be washed and dried, picked over, pounded, processed, and mixed. And all of that was done by hand, in front of a fire. Unsurprisingly, this is by far and away the most expensive cake listed, and it's said to take five to six hours to do, though I'm not sure if that time includes prep time. I don't think it does. I think she's only counting the baking time. Fruitcakes need to be baked a long time. What you're doing is you're caramelizing sugars and more drying than you are baking. This sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? Of course it is. All major life events and festivals are a lot of hard work. There's a general rule that the more important the event, the more work someone puts into it. At the time my Victorian cookbooks were being penned, literally, weddings were a once-in-a-lifetime event for the most part. Likewise, christenings. Christmas? Ah, that's every year. That cake gets raisins. The wedding cake, though? That cake gets the works. This meant not just getting the ingredients, but also washing and seeding the raisins and currants. God, how? How do you seed currants? Pounding sugar from a hard loaf into crumbles that could be used? Remember, you're mixing everything into the batter by hand, so you want them to be nice and small. And you have to candy the peels and the vegetable odds and ends. And you're going to be doing this from the scraps of your meal preparation all year long. To say nothing of scrimping and saving for extra butter and spices. A truly rich and wonderful wedding cake is a masterpiece, not only of female labor, but of household economy. You had to have the spare time, the spare money. You had to be able to do all this prep work. You had to have the staff to help you or enough leisure time to do it yourself. You needed a bucket load of fuel for the long cooking time. This is one expensive cake. So how do we go from the wedding or christening as the most important thing to Christmas deserving of such a cake? Well, a few things happen, and the first really is a modern food system. This allowed for cheaper products like spices, and the second is ready-to-use products like granulated sugar and ground spices. The third is electricity. Once the cost of the materials, the labor, and the fuel came down, it was possible to have an extravagant cake for occasions that were a reason to celebrate, but not a once-in-a-lifetime event. Incidentally, I don't have any Depression-era cookbooks in my collection, and I'm really unable to ascertain if the fashion for super-calorie-dense fruitcakes took a dive in the 1920s and 30s, but I suspect that it did. Not only were the 30s no time to be extravagant, what with the Depression, the fashion for curvy ladies had been prominent in the Edwardian era, but that had given way to the columnar shape of the flapper, and that continued well into the 30s. Calorie counting had come into vogue in the 20s, with the publication of Dr. Lulu Hunt Peters' book, Diet and Health, with key to the calories. Interestingly, calorie had to be explained. People, women especially, were watching their figures, and when the war came along, being fit stopped being a fashion statement and started being your patriotic duty. Food in Britain and other parts of the Commonwealth was rationed. In Britain, the rations started off pretty stingy, and by the end of the war, they were downright brutal. The idea of baking a cake that required exotic ingredients, highly rationed items like butter and sugar, and it required considerable fuel consumption, the idea was scandalous. Rationing didn't end until the 50s in Britain, but Canada's last ration booklet was printed in 1946, and while shortages persisted, at least you weren't going to wind up in jail for hoarding eggs by 47. So, along with Dior's new look and the fripperies like peplums and long gloves, and the tech boom in the kitchen, no, really, all those engineers had to do something after the war, and a lot of them went into designing products for the domestic market. In this environment of excitement and, if not exactly abundance enough, it's no surprise banking went absolutely bananas too. But more about that after the break. 
Hey friends, we're just going to do a quick interruption here to send a shout out to sponsor Colleen, who's not just my sister, she's also the first Patreon sponsor for She Eats Rations, and the person who suggested I do this podcast. So, thanks sis, you're pretty great. Another shout out is in order too, because Jason Deathridge is doing the sound editing and mixing and all the things that make me sound like I'm recording from a studio and not from my living room of my apartment, and he's doing it for free. So thanks Jason, that's pretty amazing. Thanks again to Colleen and Jason, friends of the podcast. And if you want to sponsor She Eats Rations, go check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Tam McNeil. That's T-A-M-M-A-C-N-E-I-L. Now, back to the show. Ever had an angel food cake? It's incredibly light, delicate, delicious with lemon curd and fresh whipped cream, or strawberries and custard, or a dusting of powdered sugar, or plain, actually. Plain is good, too. Depending on your recipe, your average angel food cake calls for a dozen egg whites. A dozen. Just to put that into perspective, when rations were tight in the UK, it was one egg per non-pregnant adult per week. If you were a kid or you were having a kid, you got an extra egg per week. And even if you could have scrounged up enough eggs, to say nothing of the sugar and the butter, to make an angel food cake, you probably would have been arrested for wastefulness. That was a thing that happened. Recipes for angel food cake have been around since the 1860s, but they made a major comeback in the post-war kitchen, when the system that had been supplying K-rations to troops was turned to domestic use and someone made an angel food cake mix. Now, I know what you're thinking. Cake mix? Ugh. Listen, this was a true story. My sister once told me that after badgering my grandma, the same one who gave us the Christmas cake recipe, to share her angel food cake recipe, she finally got a two-word answer. Those words were Betty Crocker. Sometimes cake mixes are okay. might be thinking, yeah, but angel food cake is the polar opposite of Christmas fruitcake. So why are we talking about it? Well, it illustrates the point. After the war, there was stuff. Things were convenient. And people who'd been deprived for a decade were ready to party. And by party, I mean pour an ounce of grain alcohol on a cake in the pantry once every week for 22 weeks. But you get the general idea. They wanted the extravagance that had once been the preserve of a once-in-a-lifetime event. And they wanted it every year. Enter the post-war Christmas cake. The late 40s and the early 50s are the heyday of the Christmas cake as we know it. Pick up any general cookery book from the era, made a givens, good housekeeping, any of them, and you'll find a recipe for Christmas fruitcake. In fact, you'll find them now. Cookbooks still, still list recipes for Christmas fruitcakes in the seasonal and specialty cake sections. The popularity of the Christmas cake falls pretty hard by the time people are starting to question the whole industrial food system, around the same time granola is invented, but that's another podcast episode, which is during the summer of love. That's 1967 for those of you too young to have been around then or too stoned to have realized you lived through it. Christmas cake was rather like prepackaged sliced white bread or narrow machine washable ties. It came to be associated with an older generation, which had so completely embraced it. But unlike machine washable ties and sliced white bread, Christmas cake had become tied to an event. And event-related food seems to sort of step outside the usual effects of time and exist in a sort of stasis until some serious consideration has been given and some calculated risk-taking has been had and that festival staple is quietly dropped from the menu. And if no one complains, it can wind up dropped forever. It looks like people are starting to drop Christmas cake from the menu now. It's a much maligned food stuff, and considering what gets sold on on grocery store shelves or passed around at Christmas dinner, you know, the one you saw the guy buying on January 15th, that one, it's no wonder people tend to turn their noses up at it. Most of it is terrible. But Christmas cake, like all food-related things these days, is going through a bit of a rehabilitation. 
Nigella Lawson's version is widely acclaimed and actually excellent, striking a nice balance between the way I remember it and the way I want it to be now, i.e. sweet and dense, but with fewer glassy cherries. Good Housekeeping's chocolate cherry version looks pretty good too. I might actually make it this year. If it's good, I might keep making it. I probably won't stop making Christmas cakes until I physically can't anymore. It does take a lot of arm strength. By then, it'll be up to the next generation to decide if it'll be quietly dropped from the festive menu. But by that time, if everything goes well, I'll be in my 80s or 90s. My son will be 60-ish, and by then the recipe will be 100 years old. That's an embedded tradition. Could it be Christmas without Mum's grandma's fruitcake? That'll be up to him to decide. All right, everyone, I think we're going to leave it at that. Thanks for joining me for a whirlwind tour of Christmas cakes. If you have any suggestions for things you'd like to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, drop me a line at tamthewriter at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr as tamthewriter. And you can chat with me there if you're so inclined. I'm friendly, I promise. Many thanks to our sponsors, especially to Colleen, sponsor and also the sister who got the angel food cake recipe for all of us. Nice going, sis. Technical production by Jason Detheridge, who is one swell guy. Thanks for listening. But it really doesn't matter. Grab a chair and fill your platter and dig, dig, dig right in. If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. Hired a band. Goodness sake, if I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake. How'd you do? How'd you do? How'd you do?